1: Good morning, I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is best-selling author Jennifer Close. Her new book is The Smart One. You may know her from her first novel, best-selling novel, Girls in White Dresses, which was a story, uh, a novel about uh, what on earth am I going to do with my life years of early adulthood. But her new novel and described as a new, intriguing new novel, of Parenthood and Sibling Rivalry. She focuses on a, uh, well, messier-than-friendship uh, topic, I guess, family. Uh, clo- uh, Jennifer teaches creative writing at George Washington University, and her work has been praised by Vanity Fair, Red Book, and The New York Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Jennifer. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. So I don't know if I described correctly what the theme of the book is, and I'd rather have you do that, but it is about family. And I think one of the, um, I guess, one of the write-ups that I had seen about the book uh, talked about the fact that the book, you, that that um, uh, the smart one is also about relationships having to do with women between sisters, mothers, daughters, and that men kind of take a secondary role in this novel. Yes, that's true. I, I saw the same write-up.
2: And it's funny when you're writing something, I don't think I always realize that that's what I'm doing, but the four narrators of the novel are all women. There's two adult sisters, Claire and Martha Coffey, who are um, 29 and 30 when the book opens, and they um, are both living at home for the same year. They they both move back home. And their mother is a narrator, Wheezy, and then their younger brother's girlfriend is also a narrator. So, they're kind of the ones that tell the story of the family and of that year as, you know, they're moving back home and kind of readjusting to some things that have happened to them.
1: Well, essentially, we're talking about family, but we're talking about adult families, right, getting back together. This is about a grown-up family, kids who have come back in their right. 30s uh for whatever reasons and each one has a different reason obviously. So um which is kind of unique maybe to, to our to our time now. I mean th- we have a lot of these kinds of situations where you have these adult family kids coming back and 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 living like I, I don't want to say living like they did when they were younger but, but a
2: little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, um, you know, when people ask me what sort of inspired this and again it's something that looking back on I can see why this sort of was in my, in my head as I was writing, but, um, I started writing this around 2009 and, um, there was just a lot of people around me losing their jobs. I actually was working at a magazine that folded it as well. And a few of my friends did move home and there was just, <clears throat> it was just kind of a funny time. There was, um, some people who, you know, weren't married yet or had been looking for another job and just really couldn't find one. And they, you know, had sort of, We're forced to move home, and and I don't mean to make it sound so bad because it was nice that they had that safety net, but I I agree with you. I think it is sort of a unique thing about this generation that it's, um, you know, a lot of people went home to sort of restart (laughs) and figure out what the next step is. So I think all of that around me just sort of was in my head as I was
1: writing, and that's what I had my character do. So what does happen when you move back home? And you've been out there, and you've had relationships, and you are 29 or 30. You're 31 years old, and you're coming back to live with mom or mom and dad or whomever, and you're back with your siblings. And as I mentioned in the, oh, as I when I opened the show, it's sibling rivalry never goes away, uh-uh. and so you've got all those family issues that you know come back to roost. So let's talk about that in the context of your book of the, of, um, the smart one.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a funny thing. I think you can be an adult and have been independent and lived on your own. And, you know, when you're back there, especially if you're living at home for an extended period of time, I think there's a a chance or I think most people sort of slip right back into the same roles. And it was funny, Claire, who's um, the younger of the two sisters, they're they're very, very close in age. um, She was the first character that came to me. But I sort of felt like once I had heard her voice and I was sort of telling her story and then her sister Martha came pretty soon after that, but I felt like I needed to give their mom a voice because I think she struggled a little bit during this too because, you know, the last time that her children were all living at home, she, she was in charge of them. She was taking care of them. And I think she's also struggling because she's frustrated. She can't, she can't fix things for them in the same way and she also sort of realizes there's adults, but also wants to know, you know, if they're out late, (laughs) she wants them to call because it's her house and that's what she's used to. So, um, yeah, I think there's just a funny sort of struggle and I've seen it. I have a couple of friends um, that have moved home in the past five years and there's just, there is a sort of funny, a funny push and pull of, you know, being an independent adult and still being back in your childhood bedroom. And, um, you know, you have to sort of respect the roles of your parents' house, just like you did when you were in high school.
1: So how how do we resolve this? What what's the takeaway from the? I mean, this is a novel, but obviously there are, of course, I, I would assume kernels of truth that have to do with your, you know, personally you. And that maybe I should start with like how did this, how do you come up with a novel like this?
2: Oh, that's always kind of a hard question to to answer because it's um, this sounds sort of like a made up, you know, like I'm just dodging the question. But it, it just sort of comes. I mean, I just sort of write whatever comes to me. Usually, there's a character that's. Um, sort of in my head, and then they come back more and more often. Um, this one, you know, with the first book, too, everyone always wanted to find the truth in it. And and Girls, My Dresses, there were um, aspects that, you know, I, I did live in New York in my 20s, and, um, you know, all of my friends were very important to me. So that was more, I guess I could see that I, I maybe pulled more things from my own life. It, it definitely wasn't autobiographical, but there were things that inspired it. This, um, you know, I mean, girls going
1: to everybody getting in their twenties. Everyone's getting married, going to the different, right? And and that was your experience as well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it it was funny because
2: it it was definitely my experience. But my favorite thing about when people would read it was they'd say, "Oh, this was this is my life." (laughs) And so (laughs) that was fun because that's you know sort of what I was looking for. I knew that I wasn't the only one at all that had lived that sort of that sort of time in New York and. Um, probably my favorite thing when when I first met my editor, she said, "Oh, these are my friends this is this is my life. this is you know what I do. this is what we talk about so um, that 's kind of always what you hope for with a book and the smart one is a little different um, I actually don 't have any sisters. I have two older brothers, um, and i I did not ever move home as an adult, but it you know it was I just felt like I knew these characters anyway, and I just sort of let the story unfold so it wasn 't um, but do you
1: wake up in the m- I really want to pinpoint I really want you to do this, oh, sure, because people are always you know they, they think about writing a book, a novel, whether a fiction not, well and what actually happens? I mean, do you wake up in the morning like you described the first one, girls in white dresses, that was your life, that was your experience it, it, you know that I can understand that one, but this one, as you say, you have two older brothers, the characters are not similar to to the characters in your own family or to the people in your own family so do you wake up in the morning and say, oh, I have an idea for a book or how does that actually happen?
2: You know, yeah, my process is, is a little bit messier. I don't um I talked about this book yesterday, but there's a great book um called Bird by Bird by Anne Lamont. If you've ever heard of it or read it.
1: No, um, I haven't, but I know Anne so, Lamont.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's so great. It's a book about writing and um it really actually changed a lot for me when I read it in college because I've always loved writing. I've always written and, and loved writing stories, but I think For me, I imagined writers always sat down and wrote the first page of a novel and then wrote to the end. And so I would try to start things when I was younger and I would get frustrated. And then I read her book and she talks about just sort of writing whatever scene comes to you, writing these really messy first drafts and just letting it all come out and figure it out later. And that's kind of what I do. And no, there's not, you know, like I said, I can see later why probably the idea of adults moving home was in my head at this time, but it wasn't. It wasn't a conscious decision. I didn't, I didn't wake up one day and say, "This is what I'm going to write a story about." I actually had the character of Claire, and I was just kind of writing whatever came to me. And that I know it's, um, yeah, people always get kind of frustrated. It's I don't, I don't map it out and I don't um, sort of plan it. It's just when I'm writing, all of a sudden it'll be, you know, this is the idea that's in my head that um, she was dating this guy who she had met and it wasn't working out. So I was writing that for a long time. I actually in an early draft had her moving to another city first, and then you know I tried that out and something about it didn't feel right so um, all of a sudden I knew she was going to move home. but it's just sort of I really write my way through books and the ideas just sort of come along the way and I'm not an outliner until I have um, until I have almost a whole book that's when I'll sort of sit back and outline it and sort of think of what's missing and make sure that the characters' arcs are there and that everyone is sort of fully fleshed out but um, no, it's just sort of sitting down and, and enjoying the process and just kind of writing what comes to you. And it's um, I realize it's kind of it's hard because I don't think people um, can always understand that or, or are willing to let themselves go. And, um, you know, I teach writing at GW, and my students and I always talk about this because they'll have an idea for a story, and that's what they really want to write. But part of what we do when we do writing exercises and just having them just sit down and write and write whatever comes to you is sort of, um, you know, seeing what you come up with and, and what your imagination can come up with and then going from there.
1: Jennifer, you ta- teach creative writing, as you say, at D mm-hmm. W. Can you actually teach someone to be a creative writer if they're not in the beginning? Let's say, I, you know, one takes a creative writing course and they learn the process. And in talking to different writers like yourself, I, you know, I um, once listened to, a, uh, it was a lecture, Joyce Carol Oates, and she talked about how she goes about the process. And it seems like a lot of you do it very differently. You know, mm-hmm, not everybody definitely. has the same. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but, So my question, you know, if, if someone does want to sit down and write, can you teach creative writing or is that kind of an oxymoron? It has to just sort of come from you. You know, it has to be in there or do you help bring that out in, in, in a person? You know, that's a
2: really good question. I think there's so much you can teach. I mean, I think of the best teachers I have um, and I think probably one thing that you teach along the way is discipline. I think people have this idea that you know your' just ideas are pouring out of you, and every day is amazing and I had um a pretty good friend of mine asked me one day um if there was ever a day I didn't feel like writing and I kind of laughed and and I said almost every day I don't feel like writing it's I love it, but it's hard i mean it's it's work and you're sitting at a desk for a certain amount of hours a day and you're working and it's not always going well and you're you know you're just getting through it so I think there's a lot you can teach um so that was one thing that I've learned along the way that I really, really, you know, try to get them to understand um, is that you have to work at it. Just because you have a bad day doesn't mean that you're not meant to be a writer. There's, you know, there's a lot of bad days along the way. and you really Well, just have discipline, to get to I that. hear the word, you know, yeah. Jennifer,
1: you're talking about discipline. You have to be disciplined. You do have to sit down and there are days you just don't feel like doing it, but you need to do it. Uh, when I think about writers, I think about doing something in isolation, which to me right. would be much more difficult. <laughs> Actors have uh, similar problems. They they have a role. They they're not it, doing it the way they want to, but they have a director. They have somebody there. They have interaction and connection right, with other to people yeah, to help you. So I guess my question is, do you call on people? I mean, let's say you are, you get up, you write every day. You know you have to keep going and go, you know, doing it. Do you? Is there anybody you call and say, hey, you know? I am really stuck on this. Can you help me? Can I do.
2: Yeah, you know, I I got my MFA, which is another, I mean, like you said, every writer sort of has a different process. And I've heard Joy Killer, who's she's fantastic, but she has a much different process than I do. And that's the other thing I tell my students is there's not one right way to do this. You know, I I always say, I'm going to tell you my way just so you understand it, but everyone has their own way. But um, I got my MFA, which I am so grateful for. And a lot of people don't get it or, you know, don't feel like you need to get it. For me, it was great, not only because I had two years to really focus on it, but also because I met a lot of great writers. And, um, you know, there's there's three writers that I kept a writing group with afterwards. And um, there's one in particular that we email a lot all day long. And so
0: a lot of our emails
2: are just, I don't know, I'm stuck on this character. Do you think she, I mean, we talk about these characters as though they're real people. And she's, you know, my first reader and, and I'm her first reader. And it's great because it is. It can be lonely, and it can be very isolating. And you know, as much as I can talk out loud to the to my dog, you know, they talk <laughs> back. So it's nice to have them sitting there and listening. But definitely, I I definitely call on people. I think it's it's important. Um, and it just also sort of sometimes even saying something out loud. All of a sudden, something will click, and you'll realize,
1: oh, that that's what's going to happen. Well, Um, when someone gives you feedback and it's not what you expect and perhaps it's negative feedback, how do you respond to that without feeling like, well, this is an attack on my person and, yeah, I did want feedback, but I'm not sure I wanted that kind of feedback. Right. (laughs) Right. Well, it's funny
2: because the classes that I do teach our workshop and I always, you know, tell them I've I've taken so many workshops and I can see all the kids that take my class, they they like to write. They they may not be... um, a writing major, but but they're interested in, in it in some way. That's why they've ended up in my class. And as much as they want to do it, when it comes to sort of handing out their work to their students, to other students and having everyone critique it, they get this look on their face and it's like, oh no, I know that look. It's terrifying. It's um, You're really putting it out there. And, you know, this is also something that I think just happens with experience. When I was, even in grad school, it's hard to hear people critique your work. And it depends, you know, it depends who's doing it. In grad school, there was a, sort of a competitive aspect to it as much as it was helpful. So sometimes people would be a little harsh and, you know, say things that, I don't know, just sounded like it, they were maybe just trying to be hurtful. And so that could that could be hard. Um, but also you just sort of have to learn to read through the comments. You know, n- now the people that are reading my work are, are my first readers and my editor who I – I mean, my editor is – She's amazing, and even now, even though I trust her and everything she says is said in a kind way, I'll read the comments and I'll step away for you know a day, and then I'll come back and read them again. And it's and I realize, of course, you know
1: most of them are right.
2: And when, when you I say, say that other- you
1: love your editor, she's mm-hmm. like you really are. There's a really good rapport or relationship mm-hmm. or a chemistry. Well, as a creative writer, or let's say when you're teaching your classes, do you tell your students is it important? to know whether or not you get along with your editor and perhaps you yes. don't get... I mean, let's say you have a pretty good business deal, but this doesn't work out personally. What do you do? You drop the editor? How does that work?
2: Oh, that's... You know, actually, I don't know, and because I do feel very lucky. I, I don't know how that would end up if you didn't... You know, if you were with someone that that you didn't agree with, you know, or if, mm-hmm. if you were with an editor that really tried to change your work in a way that you didn't know. I'm actually not sure... What happens, I do know that there have been writers that, you know, aren't thrilled with their editors, and then I think maybe for the next book they go on, they hope that someone else, you know, they try to sell it to someone else. Um, Thankfully, I I haven't had that, but, but that is the other thing. You have to know, just because it's an editor or even as a teacher, I say this too, if what I suggest feels wrong or, you know, if something my editor says doesn't fit right with me, I have to know if I'm being, you know part of the reason I walk away from the comments is to just make sure it's not just me being sensitive about my work, but then also to come back and think, well, this is, this is my work. So you, you're the only one that knows what's right in it. So you can't listen to, and especially in, in workshop, you can't listen to every voice. No one agrees anyway. So um, that's also something about with more experience, you just sort of learn to listen and get sort of a, just a feeling of whether or not this is a critique you want to take, or if you're just going to stick to what you're doing. So there has to be
1: a a great deal of kind of self-examination, self-awareness, really know Mm -hmm. where you're coming from. Um, And in light of that, when you have a student that perhaps you who's in your class and you think this person really doesn't have any talent and perhaps they shouldn't be wasting their time writing, do you tell them or how does that work? Oh Well, no. I mean, I teach undergrad. And,
2: you know, when you were talking about teaching writing, and I said I think there's a lot you can teach there's. Um, it's so fun for me when i look back and read the stories i wrote in college there's a tendency in younger writers i've noticed to sort of put a lot of plot in they put they they have very big things happen you know there's there's a lot of characters that get cancer and die in car accidents and there's there's these big moments cuz i think when they're writing they, they know that that's you know that will elicit an emotional response but they may never publish these stories but that that doesn't you know they're just writing through, you know, they're they're learning and they're learning their voice. I would never, I would never tell one of my students not to keep writing because I wrote some horrific stories along the way that were embarrassing, but it's just sort of something you, I think you need to do, you know, and there's some that have been able to find their voice a little earlier, but, um, no, if you like writing, I would never tell anyone not to do it. it. It's, you know, they're, they're young and they're learning it and, and they're just sort of getting through
1: it. I, I, I think that, um. And the end goal like doesn't do that, have yeah. to be the end goal uh Jennifer doesn't have to be necessarily writing a novel that's going to be a, a bestseller it may be just a process I hear you talking is of growth just you know mm-hmm. just the process of writing whether you know like painting or acting or you know it 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 helps you grow as a person
2: mm-hmm. oh definitely and I think um yeah it's funny and there's you know the students are really eager, and the will are like, I really just feel like I need to get published. And what I try to tell them, and I think they do get, I don't know, maybe sometimes frustrating mm-hmm. with me, but it's it's just, I tell them to take this time. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, you learn things about yourself, and, and there's self-growth, and also, you grow as an artist, so what I try to say is, you you might look back in five years and, and not have wanted this particular story published. By all means, send it out and try it, but, but publishing is not the be-all and end-all, which I think is also something I probably didn't understand until it happened it's it's amazing but that's not that can't be the that's not the, the only validation that you have for your writing it's you know being really proud of what you wrote and putting work into it and being happy
1: with the end product for yourself well getting so, back to you and your story mm-hmm. you jennifer close um you know i see that you grew up in north shore chicago mm-hmm. which i imagine is you know that's a an affluent um area of chicago mm-hmm. um what town did you grow up in uh, Glencoe, do you know Bencoe. it? Yeah, I know yeah. it well, near Highland Park. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And uh, my question is, like, in your own family, were you in, obviously, education, it sounds like, was very important, and mm-hmm. uh, what about encouragement and uh, from your two brothers, mother and or father, or whoever? Oh, was my,
2: yeah, my family was great. It's um You know, like I said, I always wrote my mom. It was so funny. She was cleaning out something in my old room, and... She came across this old poem, <laughs> it was, um, I don't know when I wrote it. It was about corn or something, but she hung it on the refrigerator. But I had all these notebooks that um, they would get for me. I loved writing stories, and they loved, you know, they were very encouraging about that. And then it's funny because I went um, to college. I was an education major and, and also an English major, so I was doing two things at once. And I was the one, you know, I didn't, at, right after grad school, I started working in magazines because for me, I needed something – I'm not super anxious, but I could never just get a waitress job and write because, for me, I'd be too worried about what was happening. So I, for myself, needed, you know, something, a career that I could do while I was trying to, to write. Um, and my parents were always encouraging. They were I, – I mean, I think they might have been even more excited than I was when I got the book deal. They've been great and so helpful and, um, yeah, but, but also – They were they were so encouraging, but also I I was you know working along the way and um, you know sort of doing it myself. So I don't think they were ever too worried about me think yeah. if that makes sense. Well, yeah, or it yeah. sounds
1: like you were very focused. It wasn't like this. Mm-hmm. you were going from one thing to the next, so obviously they were encouraging you. But what would you right. say to kids or to maybe who didn't grow up in a situation, you know, in maybe such a nurturing kind of environment, who really do want to write? And, and very often they'll have uh, parents or guardians, whoever's taking care of them, saying, you know, you really, this is just pie in the sky and you really need to go and get a real job, that kind of thing. What would you say to those kids? You know,
2: I, I've i actually had a couple of students whose parents really, they really want them to um, be in med school and to be lawyers, and, and they've just sort of, you know, pushed against it, and it's, um, I think it's great. I think another thing I learned along the way with one of my teachers um, in college, he was the one that said, there are jobs you can do while you're writing. So it doesn't have to be, you know, choosing the life of a starving artist or being a lawyer. You know, there's something in the middle where you can work really hard, and it's not easy and sure you're probably not going to make as much money but um there are jobs that that go with it so what i tell them is if you love writing you know look into jobs that will sort of help you do that i think working at a magazine helps my writing so much um which is great but um yeah just just stick with it because it's you know that's true my parents never pushed me in a path that i was uncomfortable with they were very happy to let me um you know, go into magazines and, and write and, and do all those things. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's your life. So if you really want to do it, um, you know, you, you just have to sort of fight for it a little bit, I guess.
1: Yeah. What about, and, and I think I read, are, are you're married now? Mm-hmm. I am. So I have to ask what your husband does.
2: Um, he works actually, uh, he works at the White House. He's an advance lead for the president. Um so that's why we we moved to DC. <laughs> and um we've been here for gosh I guess almost 4 years. He worked on um the 2008 campaign which was great for him and um it was funny he also had Oh well, he did a, a great job. job. Yeah, he has a great job. At that time he had a different job that he just he was good at and he didn't really enjoy it that much and he just sort of um you know he volunteered and then he kind of started doing advanced, and it's it's a good fit with him so it's good
1: he travels a lot which which is hard but but it's good he enjoys it a lot. I mean that's exciting. Both of your jobs mm-hmm. are exciting and interesting and and uh, obviously and creative in different ways but mm-hmm. I think uh, you know you you talked about I mean you can just getting back to the question I asked you before that you don't have to be a starving writer there are a lot of other options in between right. that and becoming a, a surgeon. But um I think the other thing is you don't have to live in one place either. You can have your editor publishers in New York. you can live in washington right. you can live in Phoenix. It doesn't really matter, so that also I think today makes it very different than maybe even ten years ago
2: yeah i agree it's it's easy I mean there's you know email and phone and you can hop on a plane it's not it's not like it used to be so it's it, which is nice because um, I got my first book deal probably right after I moved from New York. So um, I've always had a little bit of, you know, a remote relationship, and um, yeah, email email helps a lot.
1: <laughs> How long did it take you to write the book? I just interviewed somebody a couple months ago. It took her seven years to get the, to write the book. I mean, back and forth with different editors, she was saying and no one quite liked it well enough to to go with it until she revised it, and then it became a bestseller. But it took seven years to get to oh, the wow, end. Oh wow! Yeah,
2: um, it's funny with girls in white dresses. I. I started writing that book while I was still working at the magazine and um, it was funny when, when the magazine folded all of a sudden I realized, oh I have all these, <laughs> I have all these stories on my computer and I need to make sure I have all of them backed up because it, by that point I knew that it was, it was forming itself into a book. Um so Cosmodrushes probably took, from start to, from start to publication, I think each book has taken about four years, maybe three and a half. Um, but that's also, you know, when I start the idea of a book, it's it might just be a scribble on a page or, um, you know, writing one page where I, I don't really know where it's going. So it's, it's a long process. And, um, you know, I think I didn't realize how much goes into it after you get the book deal and after the, the book is officially accepted, even after it's edited, there's copy edits and fact-checking and, you know, there's so much that goes into it that, that takes time. So... I would, that's, I think, about four years from start to finish. So, in um, other
1: words, what you're I mean, saying is, I mean, there's the creative process and there's the business process as well. Oh, definitely, so, yeah. Yeah, and that's all together. And it's fun, too. It's it's different, but, you know, finding
2: the cover and, and getting all of that. So, <laughs> there's, there's a lot to it. Oh, yeah,
1: let's talk about the cover, because that's a, I know that's a whole other issue or a whole other decision-making process of how you decide to... why. <laughs> Who does the cover and why did you, and who makes the decision about what's going to be on the cover? We only have a few more minutes, but talk to us about that. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, so they, you know, Knopf has an art department that's
2: wonderful, and they have someone who reads the book and then, you know, gives sort of some images. And with the first book, there was actually about four different covers that we saw. And this is what I was saying, even with working in magazines, I kind of, it's different, but we had an art department as well, and so I, I did understand the process and and how they work. Um, you know, so they give me a little bit of feedback, but that's also you know they're they're the professionals and and they're the ones that that kind of know what's eye catching um, and I think Girls my like dresses because it was my first book. I felt really protective of it, so it was kind of like, oh, I don't know about this one or this one, but um, everyone had you know it took a while to sort of find the right one for that and then this one it was the same woman, um Abby Weintrump, who's fantastic i I'm, I love both of my covers, and for the smart one this was the first cover that we saw and I, I just really loved it. Um, it's, you know, it, it's sort of a companion piece. It looks a little bit like the last cover instead of polka dots, there's stars and it's an image of a woman. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, they're the ones that do it and then, and then you see it. And, um, yeah, I think it's eye catching in a bookstore. So it is fun, but it's, I don't have, you know, I'm not in there with them picking images. They're the ones that, that read it and, you know, do the work. And what they about are. the
1: title because as I understand and, and talking to authors too like they have a title they're really sure this is what they want but it gets changed in the process because that whatever their title is isn't going to sell or isn't going to be yeah, eye catching. Yeah, yeah, I actually
2: had a different title for the smart one for a long time. Um I was calling it stories people tell because a lot of the book is sort of about the roles that you play and and you know the stories you tell yourself if if you tell yourself, "Oh, I'm I am the smart one or, you know, I'm really good in school it's, and sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy and the stories that are told about families and um, all of those things. So I actually really liked that title and, and no one else did. Um, I think part of what they were worried about was that it sounded like a story collection. So um, they wanted it changed. And that was a little harder only because I had lived with that title for two years. So to me, that, that was how I thought of the book. Yeah. well, um, you didn't
1: design you, you th- that was your title, but you didn't actually design the cover. It's easier to give that up, I would imagine right right, to, right, yeah, yeah. and
2: but, then my editor and I wrote back and forth, and the smart one was a title that um I had thrown out there, and she really liked it and and I do too I think it um it's catchy, I think it gets to sort of it's sort of a funny play on the term, and I think it it gets to you know sort of the heart of the book, at, of, of what it's about and, um, you know, family relationships. So I did learn to like it, and I'm glad I found it because there was a couple days and I thought, what am I going to call this book? I don't have a name for it. So well, it, it is a good, a good title. Ending. It's a
1: catchy title. Mm-hmm. I think it draws you into the book, and as you say, so does the, the cover itself. Uh, mm-hmm. Jennifer Close, and uh, the title of the book is The Smart One. It's a novel. Uh, Jennifer, we can go online um, and uh, give us a website that we can go to so that we can continue to kind of f- to follow you and also to buy the book, which you can buy online and obviously at bookstores everywhere. Mm-hmm. Oh, sure. Yeah, my website is JenniferCloseBooks.com. And I, I would assume that you're someone, because you are a writer, who mm-hmm. keeps your website uh, current. <laughs> I do
2: yeah, I do it's I actually just um uh I had a lovely website designer, but I do have a blog and yeah, and some events and everything up there, so yeah i um everything is current, <laughs> All right. so you do have a blog, Is this something that you write every day? no, i uh, you know, um because it was the end of the school year and I was traveling for the book, I actually haven't written in a while, but I think i will, I just started doing it, I think I will like it mostly for book recommendations. I love telling people if I've read something and loved it. I want to tell everyone about it so they can get it. So I think that's probably what I'll mostly use it for, but, um, yeah, it should be fun. I, I, I really just have a few posts up, but <laughs> but I will be writing a little bit more.
1: Terrific. Well, well, we'll be reading, and besides reading your book and reading your blog, Jennifer Close, uh, The Smart One. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you so much. Yeah, great talking to you today. You too. Our second guest is uh, with us. He's an inspirational speaker, writer, and surgeon, uh, MD, Emile Allen and his new book is "Eaten by the Tiger," surrounding, not surrounding, surrendering to an empowered life. In 1998, Dr. Emil Allen barely escaped electrocution while saving a patient's life, and in a split second, everything changed. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You are listening to the Catherine Zox Show, and we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back to talk to Dr. Allen in a minute.
0: surprise you. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: We're back. I'm Catherine Zuck, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to the Catherine Zuck Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Um, as I said just before the break, uh, I'm going to be talking to Doctor A. Meal um, Allen, and he's an MD. He's a surgeon, a writer, an inspirational speaker, and his new book is "Eaten by the Tiger: Surrendering to an Empowered Life." And uh, uh, in 1998, as I mentioned before. He barely escaped electrocution while saving a patient's life, and in a split second, Dr. Allen went from performing intricate surgical procedures to struggling to do simple tasks like reading a book or counting change. Um, In "Eaten by the Tiger," Dr. Allen journals lessons learned from recovery from extreme physical and emotional losses. He was the former chief of urology at Scripps Memorial Hospital in Los Angeles. And is now an executive transformational expert and life success strategist. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Doctor.
3: Nice to meet you, Catherine. Thank you for inviting me to your show.
1: Yeah, well, that's quite a story. That, uh, I mean, that's, let's talk about what happened to you first. And obviously, it was life changing, a before and after experience. Um, and, um, what happened on that day? Well, um, you know, let me start out with, uh, you
3: know, the fact that you know, we, we, I'm sure a lot of the listeners have uh, seen the movie The Life of Pi. And, you know, if they haven't, you know, it was about like this 14-year-old boy who lost his entire family and was shipwrecked. Um, basically, well, he, the ship went down and was carrying a bunch of zoo animals and he was uh, shipwrecked on a, on a lifeboat uh, with a tiger <laughs> on that boat. And there is, so he couldn't get off the boat because the tiger's there and then there's sharks circling the boat, uh, you know, so, uh, he, he certainly couldn't go into the water and there was no land in sight and he had limited food supplies. And, you know, things that tigers do that I know very well is they like to reincarnate others. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, it was a no-win situation for him and that was a fictional story. But for me, back in 1998, long before the life of Pi, I had to deal with my own tiger, and that was uh, uh, you know when I, I had a uh, near death experience after I was nearly electrocuted in the operating room while I was removing a patient's kidney. Uh, a piece of medical equipment malfunctioned, and uh, the electricity from the medical equipment had to find ground, and I happened to be that part of that circuit to find ground. And um, it was a it was a life changing experience. And my operating room team had to go from uh, um, saving the patient's life, which they were able to do, but to also saving my life. And I'm you know so grateful and blessed that they were they were able to to do both, and they did a tremendous job. I but think- it was a life life changing experience.
1: So when that happened to you, did you, uh, when you say life-changing experience and you almost died, um, did you, were you unconscious for a long period of time, or exactly, I mean, what happened to you? Did you? uh,
3: Well, the elect, the the, I was using a a very common instrument that all surgeons use called an electrocautery unit. It cauterizes blood vessels and cuts through tissue at the same time it's a basically an electrical scalpel, and it helps with decreasing our blood loss and and improving operating room time well, on this particular day, the electricity couldn't find ground, and it went into my left hand and up my arm through my heart through my brain and up my right ankle and threw me back about six or eight feet and uh it you know, felt like my hand had just been blown off and it, it was just excruciating pain. And then I subsequently, you know, collapsed down onto the floor and and uh, started to uh, then, you know, have a seizure. And people, I saw people running around trying to help me. And, 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 you know, they were just as shocked as I was. And um, But then all of a sudden the room got quiet, even though I still saw the people running around. I couldn't hear them anymore. And then eventually everything went dark. And during that period of time, you know, when I went through this period of darkness, uh, I heard this voice that said, I'm not ready for you yet. You have more work to do.
1: Where did that voice come from? Or at the time, where did you think it come? Was that coming from you? Well, it certainly wasn't
3: someone in the room who said that. It was something that, you know, I, I, you know, who knows? I mean, is it something that, you know, comes from God if you're, you know, spiritual and believe in God? Is it something that comes from, you know, something in your brain that says, you know, know, you're not ready to die yet, who knows, but all I know is I heard this voice and I heard it twice I'm not ready for you yet, you have more work to do and then I came back uh, after, you know, a few seconds, minutes, I don't know exactly how long I was out, but when I came back, you know, the pain came back and I knew I was alive because the pain came back just as bad as it was when the accident had happened and I was wheeled away and and you know, taken care of, and and uh, but subsequently over the ensuing months, I had to close my practice down and move in with my parents. And I got to the point where I was having you know recurrent seizures, and um, uh, uh, I had a traumatic brain injury and multiple other injuries. And it, uh, it 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 was all of a sudden I went from you know being a successful surgeon to now having my parents take care of me, and I lost my independence, and that was really really hard.
1: Well I mean, when yeah. you talk about you you weren't i mean perhaps just and I'll say you know ordinary, like the rest of us, you're a surgeon, so you're kind of at the top of your game, and then all of a sudden is you know you you you're like as you say a child having to be taken care of by your parents um what was what were the feelings at that point I mean, just in the realizing that you well couldn't even read a book or take care of your activities of daily living um and what was the process?
3: The well, it was very, it was very difficult. And you know it, 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 you know, it doesn't matter, you know, what you do for a living or whatever. I mean, anyone who goes through a crisis, uh, their experience is just as important as anyone else's, you know. And, and that, that's, that's one thing that I, I really like to stress. Um, is, is that whenever we're going through a crisis, our crisis is very important to us, whether it's a financial crisis, a physical, or an emotional crisis. And, you know, for me, I found that the emotional trauma was far, far greater than the physical because the emotional trauma was not allowing me to move forward with my life. And, um... But, Doctor,
1: you know, I do want to interrupt you because as a social worker and every all of our lives, everybody's life obviously is just as important as the other person's. But when you talk about the emotional trauma, I know that sometimes in, I've dealt with a lot of, of, worked with a lot of people in rehab, for instance, and there are those who are more comfortable with being taken care of emotionally. I mean, they don't, and and, and not that the trauma of perhaps whatever happened to them, whether it's a stroke or something that happened, you know, an accident or, like, what happened to you. But don't wrestle with being as dependent as others do. And I'm making – so there is, I think, sometimes in terms of emotional response, there is a difference.
3: Yeah, and I would say that. And it all depends on what your personality is like. Um, You know, some people like to be taken care of. Um, I'm the type of person, I'm a very independent person, and I was not going to allow myself – uh, to be, you know, to be a victim, you know, instead. of I wanted to, I wanted to become a victor, and, um, you know, because I've taken so many care of so many patients throughout my life, and I've had to counsel thousands of patients and not only patients but their family members, um, you know, when they would get their family member would get a, you know, a diagnosis or something like that. So it's, 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 it's something that I just didn't want to fall into as that victim role. So I did my best to, to overcome that. And, you know, one thing that I was really difficult for me is I had to take, you know, nine different prescriptions, 36 different pills a day, uh, and suffer all the side effects from those medications. And, uh, then, you know, I kept getting diagnosed with another condition, another condition because of, you know, side effects from medications and other things. And then eventually, uh, I was labeled with the diagnosis of depression. And you know, I I knew I wasn't depressed. There was something more going on here, and I would try to explain that to my to the, you know, my colleagues and and to the psychologist that they sent me to. And as I was explaining it to the psychologist, I remember this is kind of a kind of a funny story. Like, you know, she was just telling, her, well, Emil, you're depressed and you need time, and it's going to take time. And you got to stay on your medicines, et cetera. And, oh, man, it's just as quickly as that bolt of electricity had come out of that electrical surgical unit and, you know, almost killed me. I just shouted out, I said, I'm not depressed. I'm not. I'm grieving over my losses. You know, I lost my career. I lost my practice. I lost my patience. I lost my significance. I lost my independence. And, you know. So it's a normal
1: reaction to a catastrophic crisis. Yeah. Yeah.
3: And the thing about it is, is not only that, it's like, you know, I didn't, I had, I didn't have any idea of what my future had in store for me because I was recovering from these injuries and I didn't know what level of recovery I would, I would have. And so I I didn't feel appreciated that people weren't listening to me and I didn't feel significant anymore. And that is something that I think that a lot of people who go through any kind of a crisis, whether it's financial, physical, or emotional, go through. Is that they don't feel appreciated? You know, and I wonder how many of the listeners right now may not feel appreciated in their in their career choice, their job, or may not be feel appreciated in their personal lives. You know, from a spouse or you know some other loved one, like a parent or a child. And you know, because life can throw curveballs at us when we least expect it, and we have to learn how to deal with those curveballs.
1: Yeah, I think the key word obviously here is grieving you know and i think that's really uh, it's so important because people do kind of even this is a psychologist but she's kind of putting her own uh her own stuff onto you you know you're depressed but you know as we said or as i said i guess you know it is a normal your reaction was normal you're going through this hor- this grieving process
0: well exactly. if you're not
1: appreciated uh, i mean there are people who go through and you know similar kinds of events do you recommend being with those people and, uh, you know, being in group therapy or being involved with other people who have, you know, experienced similar kinds of things so you are appreciated or understood and can move on.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, what we have to realize is that grieving is not just something that occurs when someone dies. It also, grieving can occur from the depth of your identity and the struggle of the emotional attachments that you have to who you were or who you would like to be, but you're having a struggle getting to that point.
1: Well, wouldn't you say well, the, the marathon runners who had their legs blown off are just exactly that you're describing that person, someone who, who is a runner and has devoted their life to that, and now they don't have a leg?
3: Absolutely. The
1: Boston Marathon absolutely.
3: I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my heart goes out to what they're going through. But I can tell you that, you know, it won't happen immediately, but with time, they are going to be able to find the gifts that came out of that. Um, what we need to do is we need to, um, to be grateful for all the things that we still do have and then focus on those, you know, focus on that gratitude list. You know, I actually wrote out a list of about 15 pages of all the things that I was grateful for.
1: Alright, tell us and a few. I, let's start with a few because people are going to be thinking, oh, look, he was a surgeon. Now he can't be a surgeon. What do you have to be grateful for? What would be that? What's on that long list?
3: Oh gosh. I mean, the fact that you're still alive, the mm-hmm. fact that you, you know, you have, you, you have, you know, friends or loved ones that are there supporting you. Um, the fact that, you know, that you have the faith, just like the faith that you have that you know unequivocally that you're going to take your next breath, you're going to have your next heartbeat. You have to have that faith that you are going to get better. And you'll get better to a point where when you stop thinking about you all the time and you start thinking about other people by helping other people, contributing, writing a book, speaking about your at your incident, whatever it might be, you know, you, then we've stopped focusing just on you, then now you're um, you, it helps you in your healing process. It helps you get out of that grieving process or p- depression that you might be going through. You know, and that's the thing that I, I, I really want to stress is that a lot of times, I, I really believe that depression is way overdiagnosed, and therefore people are overmedicated, medicated. I think that a lot of depression is really people grieving over a loss. And when you identify what that loss is and you allow that grieving process to occur, then people will not have to be medicated as much.
1: I think also, Doctor, it's and I I, I do I agree with you. Uh, we live in a society where there's an expectation of being, and I'm putting this in quotation, happy every day. And that if we have emotions like grieving and sadness and loss, that we don't want, we just have to gloss over. It. We we really should be happy. And if we're not happy, then we are depressed. And and the and all those other emotions are part of growing and evolving. At least that's sure. what you're saying, yeah.
3: Well, in my book, Eaten by the Tiger, you know, I, I talk about, you know, why uh, grieving is, is, is important. And then also, um, you know, how to get out of that freeze mode. Because what happens is when we go through a crisis, we, we're, we're, we're it's fearful. It's just, you know, you, you, it's fearful, fear, fear, it's fearful just like, you know, you're fearful of being eaten by the tiger. Yeah. You know, the tiger's there and that represents the fear and you don't know what to do in life. And so what happens when people are fearful? People tend to freeze, and they can't move forward, and they hold on to the past, and they don't want to let go of the past. But you've got to let go of that. You have to face your fears sooner or later in order to move forward in your life.
1: Did you have an aha moment when that happened to you, when you said, okay, you know, you've got the psychologist telling you that you're depressed and you're realizing, well, wait a minute, no, I'm not. Did you have a moment where you said, not necessarily i have to get out of the freeze mode but did, did you or did you have a moment like that like i have to this isn't working i i do have to go go ahead
3: um, I actually fired her. <laughs> I fired her on the spot and That's I remember I, I felt empowered and I walked down the uh down the uh, stairs of the of the building and walked yeah. out into the courtyard and felt that warm skin that <laughs> warm sun on my skin and kinda of put my arms in the air and I was, like so proud of myself yeah. that I finally got my power back and then I said Oh shoot, now what I do, you know, <laughs> you know but you know, that was like, uh, that was an awakening moment for me. And, and then that's when I started going on this journey of self-discovery and I, I started, you know, reading a lot of books and, and, you know, cause at, that, at that point in time I was able to read again and cause this was years after the accident and I started um, traveling and, and doing some things that I had never really done before as a surgeon and it really uh, just meeting the people of various people that came into my life that were just turned my life around. Like I said, I mean, it's all about, you know, contributing and being, you know, contributing, helping other people. And because when you're focusing on yourself, one thing I can say is that when you're depressed, you're focusing on you. If you stop focusing on you, you won't be as depressed anymore. So um, that, that's really important.
1: Well, touching other people's lives, helping other people, I mean, you did that as a surgeon, and now you're doing it in a different way. Um, inspirational speaker, I think, is obviously is really important. You talked about, like, all the, many you know, many of the people that you have met and you have inspired. Get, get, can you talk about one or two of them that really touched you?
3: Oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: I know it's hard to pick, yeah, but just
3: you know. yeah, yeah, um just the other day, um, uh, man, it's just kind of emotional. I was uh speaking to to a woman who her husband was a uh, a NASA scientist, and so he was a real rocket scientist, and her husband uh, had to have brain surgery, and since his brain surgery, he has been really, really struggling. I mean, he, he um, you know, he's struggling. He was struggling. He's struggling now, just like I was struggling back, you know, after my accident where his IQ had dropped quite a bit and he was having problems with basic skills. And they've been trying to explain this to his colleagues at work because he's still able to work, but he's, it takes him longer to do tasks, and they just, they, they don't get it. And when she heard my story, she just started crying and she was like, Oh my God, I finally met someone who understands what my husband is going through. And so, um, you know, the fact that we have now connected and we're talking now, he has a support group and I'm able to help reframe, reframe some of his, you know, his tragedy into gifts. Um, because that's what I help people do. I help show the gifts that are coming from their lives and, um, show them that they can bring out that inner brilliance within them because they still do have skill sets and things to share with the world. And it's just that they need a an avenue or a a, a vessel in order to to show that. And that's what I like when I'm doing coaching with someone uh, or I'm you know doing a public uh, uh, keynote speech or something, and i can I can talk to the audience about those types of things.
1: Do you ever get frustrated? Do you ever, I mean, because, I mean, it sounds like what you're doing is, you know, sort of I can see you laying on of hands almost, you know. You inspire somebody, then, of course, they go on to inspire somebody else. I mean, it has a rippling effect. But what about your frustrations? I mean, there are times when you go home and think, I just, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. I has to be exhausting. It has to be, well, you know, all of those things. So, and and when that happens to you, then what do you do?
3: Look, it, I, I face my tigers every day. I really do. And, you know, the, and, and just like a lot of people have to face their tigers, but because I've gone through this process over the past, you know, 14 years, and I've learned how to face my tigers by, you know, the various insights that I talk about in my book, um, I'm able to Turn my tigers into kittens. Basically, they're still going to grow up and they're going to come back again. But at least I'm, I'm able to recognize them and deal with them immediately. You know, uh, one of the things that is really um, was really helpful for me as uh, getting through this process. You know, as a surgeon, when I go into the operating room, I always had a plan A, and a plan B, and then a plan C. And if plan A wasn't working, you know, during our operation. And you know, because of unexpected blood loss or there 's something else going on that we never would have expected, we have to move to plan a our plan B and just totally forget about plan a plan A and never even think about it again and that 's the same thing that goes on here you know when you 're struggling in life and something's not working for you, you've got to let it go. You have to let go of the physical attachments that you have to it and the emotional attachments that you have to it and move on to something else and see what door is going to open there. You know, a closed door doesn't mean that another one isn't going to open.
1: What happens to the people in your life? And, and I think what you just said, yes, you do. You have to let go, let go of the past. But now, in, in letting go of the past, let's. Let You're a surgeon, and I'm making the assumption that you probably hung out with other surgeons, and there were certain groups of people that you hung out as a result of your career. Do you have to let go of them too, or or are, or how does that or how does that fit into your life? Well, yeah sometimes um sometimes we
3: do have to let go of people in our lives because it just may not be supporting what you're doing at this point in time, but it doesn't mean that they're gone forever they'll come you know they'll if they're meant to be in your life they'll be there uh maybe not at this that point in time in your life, maybe at a future point in time in your life but um you know people will I couldn't have gotten through any of this by myself it had to be you know through the colleagues and my friends and my loved ones who were there for me to help help me through this. And, um, you know, one thing that people ask me is, like, don't you miss being a surgeon? And I look back and I'm like, no, I don't. You know, in 1998, I had a near-death experience. But I wake up every day to, you know, right now, and I'm having a new life experience. And, um you know, as an author and speaker, I feel like I'm healing more people every day than the average could when I was holding a scalpel in my hand, and the best part about it is that I'm not leaving any scars as a reminder of whatever tragedy that person went through, and I'm only giving them guidance and so that really feels good to me, it really feels good,
1: yeah, you know, I was thinking. Being, you're a surgeon, now you've taken a different path, you've had the opportunity. I mean, to me, there are so many paths, and and there are so many exciting paths one can take. Most of us don't have the opportunity to do that, or we're not pushed into it. So we go down kind of one road, and it's really great, and sometimes as we get older, um, you think, well, I could have done something else, too, that was equally as good, which is kind of what you're doing. Um, Let's. I want to mention your book again and and website because you have a website as well, right, Doctor?
3: Yes, it's tiger dot com, and then off of my website there's a tab there to go to my blog, and I have a blog. It's email allen e m i l e allen a l l e n m d as a medical doctor dot com, so emailallenmd.com. email md dot com. But if they just go to my website at Eat by the Tiger, they can find out, you know, more about my story. And they you know, I have some videos on there, a uh, video of the book trailer and a video of, of award from me, the author. And also there's links to go to uh, the multiple vendors that are um, selling my book
1: right now. Terrific. Thank you so much for, well, sharing your story and talking about the book. And uh, re- I recommend the book to uh, all my listeners, but uh, it's been great talking to you today.
3: I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Catherine.
1: Dr. Oneil Allen and his new book is Eaten by the Tiger. It's time for us to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a good week, and we'll see you next Wednesday.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network.